I became a full-time pastor a little more than 28 years ago, and in a manner, the world was very, very different back then. It has absolutely changed so much. The internet was already a thing 28 years ago. That's going to surprise some of you, uh, but just barely. Uh, social media was just appearing through a website called MySpace. Some of y'all probably don't even know what that was. The church called it the devil's tool, and in a manner, they were correct. That would eventually be replaced by all the different social media options that we have available to us today. And although some good can come from those social media outlets, there's still a whole lot of evil that comes from those services as well. And honestly, I wonder what the value is of everyone knowing what your dog did or what we ate or whatever else we tend to put out there. So I don't know why we do it, we just do. It's more than social media that has changed though. I can still remember as a young pastor, me getting my first cell phone. My kids talk about how, how old were you when you got your first cell phone, if they only knew. The reality is we didn't even have cell phones when we were growing up, so it wasn't an option. When I did finally get a phone, it was a bag phone. Some of y'all might remember that. It had an antenna, I had to have it in the car, and I had to take the antenna and put it outside of the vehicle just to be able to make it work. It looked like something that you would use to call in an airstrike. Technology has definitely changed, but those are all little things. Over time, our schools have changed as well. Parenting has changed. The political environment has changed. And even church life has changed. And I guess that in a manner, change is always happening around us. At times, it's a necessary thing. And it almost always either makes us incredibly uncomfortable or incredibly excited. We either dread change or we look forward to it. But you know, not all things have changed. Unfortunately, many of the same things that people were dealing with 28 years ago are still a part of our culture today. In fact, if anything, we're just more aware of those things than we used to be. For example, shortly after I arrived at my first church, I became painfully aware of a problem that existed within one of our church families. There were two young boys in our youth ministry who showed up to church with new coats on. They were pretty excited. The only problem was that a week later, both boys needed a coat. Upon further review, it became apparent that dad had an addiction to gambling. He had to return the coats so that he could place a bet and it didn't work out. Now, when you asked him about it, he simply said that it was a hobby. It wasn't an addiction, it was just a hobby. It wasn't a problem. Statistics tell us that over seven and a half million people struggle with some form of gambling addiction in the United States. Yet most would say that they don't have a problem. That family quickly became aware of a problem. Add to this the 23 and a half million people who are hooked on mind-altering substances. If you remember two weeks ago, I mentioned alcohol, but it's a lot more than just alcohol. In fact, if we only dealt with the alcohol statistics, there are over 300,000 people. Actually, that's not correct. 300. Man, I got the wrong numbers there. Yeah, just pretend I didn't even add that one. 
I'm pretty sure that was supposed to be three million people worldwide who struggle with alcoholism. I want you to know today there are 23 and a half million people who struggle with drug abuse. Among young people, the use of drugs and alcohol have become so commonplace that they don't even consider the possibility that what they're doing might be wrong. I was doing some Uber driving about a year ago and I picked up a young man in Clemson. I had to take him about a half hour away to Pickens and it was the far side of Pickens. As he got in the vehicle, I gave him my general greeting of, hey, how you doing? His response, not too good. My girlfriend and I got into a fight last night and she left me at my friend's house. Now I'm trying to get back to her. He then added that what made things even worse for him was the fact that he didn't have any pot with him so that he was stressed all night about what was going on. Then he said, what about you? What do you do for a living? <laughs> I replied, well, it's funny you should ask. I have multiple roles. I said, I am the pastor of a church in town. I also work with the Clemson Police Department. And I, before I came here, I actually ran a drug addiction recovery house at my former church. Talk about awkward. <laughs> actually, at that moment, he immediately hung his head. He said, you're kidding. <laughs> well, we talked for the entire trip to Pickens County. He attempted to minimize the drug use, although he had just admitted that he was dependent on it the night before. And by the time we got to Pickens, with his eyes filled with tears, he asked me to pray for him to overcome this addiction. We did, and I heard nothing from him for about six months. One day, I picked up this young man and gave my general greeting, asking how he was doing. His response, not too good. Me and my girlfriend got into a fight and I cut him off. I said, wait a second. We've had this conversation and suddenly it clicked between both of us and he got excited and I got excited. And then he got really excited. He said, I needed to tell you, I quit smoking pot. <laughs> of course, I got really excited at that point and told him that was fantastic to hear. I asked what made him finally quit. And he said, well, I had to. I got arrested, now I get drug tested every week. <laughs> it wasn't quite as exciting as I was hoping for it to be. You know, part of the problem for this young man is the fact that we have minimized all forms of addiction to the point that it seems like it's not that big of a deal. And only when it catches up to us through an arrest or our lives falling apart, do we realize that we have a problem? In fact, I wish that I could tell you that this young man's story was all that unique. It is not. As a part of our Celebrate Recovery ministry, we are constantly visited by individuals who are typically in crisis or really close to it. But the problem didn't just appear when they had a crisis. They've often been dealing with it for a while. They just didn't know it. We see this in our scripture today. If you would, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John in chapter 8. We've been looking at a series entitled Wide Open. We've talked about having a wide open faith. We've talked about how God can use our failures. We've talked about how he can use our fears. 
We're in John chapter 8 this morning, and it's a chapter that's filled with confrontation, typically with people who are trying to trap Jesus. It begins with Jesus teaching a woman. He's teaching, and a woman is brought to him who has been caught in adultery. All of you probably are familiar with that story already. The Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to say something that he shouldn't say so that they can use it against him. They've set their trap, but Jesus doesn't bite on it. Then Jesus is speaking again, and he declares that he is the light of the world. And in John 8, 13, we see that the Pharisees challenged him. What a dumb decision. <laughs> you can challenge a lot of people. Jesus is not the one to challenge. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid, but his testimony absolutely was valid. Add to that a discussion where Jesus addresses his own deity while also identifying the sinfulness of the religious audience. And you can sense the conflict that is all over the place here. In verse 23 and 24, we see that Jesus continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. So we have all this conflict, and maybe you're wondering what any of this has to do with freedom, because today I want to talk about us being wide open to freedom. Listen, in the midst of this conflict, we see Jesus offering freedom to humanity. It's so easy sometimes in conflict to lose sight of the things that matter. Listen to Jesus' words, beginning in John chapter 8, verse 31. It says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. So how can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. First thing I want you to see here today is that Jesus doesn't just offer freedom to a few. He offers it to all those who hear his voice. And that would have included the religious leaders who have been trying to set a trap all throughout this chapter. They've been in conflict with him. They've tried to catch him saying something he shouldn't say. They've put him in positions where there was always a secret agenda, but he offers freedom to anyone who will believe. Now, there is a catch. Sure, the offer is there for all, but not all will be set free. He says that if you hold to my teaching, you are my disciple, and you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. So there is an expectation that these people will do what they're supposed to do. This is the acting justly that's talked about in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It's a theme verse that we've used often here at the church. It's a question and answer verse. And it says, And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 
Well, God requires that we act justly, that we do what is right. I'm not to the other two parts yet, but I think one of the problems that Christians often get into is that we find ourselves focusing on only one of these three items, or maybe even two, but rarely do we focus on all three. Either we are people who are constantly calling people to holiness, or we are people who want to lean so heavily on grace that doing good is almost thrown out, or we are so focused on the Spirit that we are blind to the fact that the Spirit serves to point us back to the Son who called us to be holy. In Jesus' case, this should have been a very inviting statement to these Pharisees. They were good at keeping the law. Well, actually, they were better at telling other people how to keep the law than they were at actually keeping the law themselves. Obedience shouldn't have been a problem, but there was a problem that kept them from grabbing hold of what Jesus was saying. Look again at Jesus' response there in verse 33. Actually, it's not Jesus. This is their response. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? The issue for them is not that they don't want to do good. It's that they don't see the need for freedom. We're already free. What are you talking about? Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. What do you mean we are slaves? We've always been free. We're not in bondage. Dealing with all sorts of addiction over the years, this is a common argument. I'm not really addicted. I could quit anytime I wanted. I just don't want to. I imagine that we've all heard other people say things like that. But what if drug addicts and gambling addicts and alcoholics weren't the only ones unaware of their bondage? You know, there's a part of us, we look at those people and we look at the things that they've done and the problems that they have experienced. We almost look with a heart of judgment. I'm just glad I'm not one of those people. The reality is, when this text was written, meth wasn't a reality. Fentanyl wasn't a reality. Sure, there were probably other substances that were there, but this was not written about addiction recovery. This was written about sin. So often we've painted other individuals as being worse, but we are no better than them. The reality is sin has a hold of our lives and it will always create a problem. The only way to fix that sin problem is through Jesus Christ. So often in our Celebrate Recovery ministry, I have said that I wish everyone in the church would be a part of such a ministry. Not because you're all drug addicts, not because you're all alcoholics, but rather because we are all sinners who have been enslaved by sin. And the purpose of what they do at Celebrate Recovery is to teach people to live outside of that sin. Jesus said, everyone who is a slave, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And as he said that, it is likely that the religious leaders in front of him thought, well, it's a good thing I'm not one of those sinners. You say, oh, nobody would actually think that. Actually, yes, they would. Again, we look so often at others. It's a good thing I'm not a sinner. They're so focused on the sins of others that they couldn't see their own sin. 
apparently didn't realize that all have sinned, according to uh, Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, just to illustrate this, listen to a parable that Jesus told in Luke 18. He said, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Man, would you want to be in that crowd? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And you picture him using his finger so that everybody knows who he's praying about. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You've got two different individuals in this parable. One who is very confident in his self-righteousness and the other ashamed to even look up to the Lord. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were confident of their own righteousness. In a moment of transparency, I sometimes wonder if that is me. I also wonder if sometimes that might be us together. We get so confident that we are right, and the truth is that puts us sometimes in a very dangerous place. Before I move on from this, let me also point you to the fact that this is where the second part of Micah chapter 6 verse 8 comes into play. It's a lot easier to love mercy when you realize how much mercy you have also received. I'm not any better than you, and you're not any better than me. We all need incredible mercy. But y'all have heard me say this before, and I'll say it again. It's often much easier to receive mercy than it is to give mercy. I hope that what you hear from me this morning, what you've seen so far, is that all of us need to realize. We need the realization. We need to realize that we too are sinners. We need to realize how broken we are. We need to realize that we are no better than anybody else. And we are all in need of God's grace. We need to realize that there is nothing that we can do to fix our own brokenness aside from finding the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, the first thing we need to do, we need realization. We also need submission. I suggest to you today that there are many who want the freedom that we are talking about, but few will find it. Again, it's not because God is playing a game of hide and seek with us. He's made the offer of freedom to all who will respond in obedience. But often the issue is a four-letter word to us, and that word is will. W-I-L-L. I've been in the process of writing a book for several years that addresses God's plan to set people free from addiction. I want to read a quote to you from that book. The sad reality is that unless an individual truly wants to change, unless they reach a point where they genuinely hate their addiction, then they will not succeed. 
when an individual is on their deathbed and they've given up, we say they no longer have the will to live. Their heart is not in it anymore. They're no longer determined to win this battle. You must have the will to win this battle. Otherwise, you will lose. In the Christian world, we often speak of submission. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands and wives, submit to one another. Submit to the Lord. Submit to the authority. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I want you to know today that submission to the Lord is not a half-hearted decision. It is a matter of the will. It is our willingness to say that, God, I will do what you long for regardless of my own thoughts and plans. By the way, this is the third element in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. We're kind of weaving two passages together here today. Walk humbly with your God. This is about submission to his will and his plan in our lives. And the beauty of full submission is that God promises transformation and victory. In John 8, 36, Jesus says that if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. It's not a you might be free. It's not that it's a possibility. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Again, using addiction as our model, we so often see individuals who will try all sorts of things to find their freedom from whatever it is that ails them. They might try accountability. They might receive some type of counseling. They might become involved in some sort of rehab. I met a guy who was at a teen challenge, a Christ-centered inpatient rehab facility in Pennsylvania. This guy shared that he was in his 21st inpatient addiction recovery center. He was hoping that this time it would work. Let me just say that none of the things that I just mentioned are bad. Accountability, it's a great thing. Counseling can be an amazing thing. Inpatient rehabs, great places where God has certainly done great things. But freedom is not found merely in a program. Freedom is offered through Jesus Christ. Those other things, they might be good tools that will help you along the way. And I encourage you to take advantage of them. But it is the Son who sets you free. Again, moving away from this example of addiction, there are so many sins that have just become a part of our lives that we don't even think all that much about them anymore. I've always had a hot head. I've always struggled with lust. I've always talked like that. And we may try to control these things by developing maybe some accountability or trying to change the environment around us. But the only thing that can truly change us, that can truly set us free, is the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. You can do all kinds of good things that will try to make your life better. You can try to clean yourself up and somehow make yourself a good person. But the only thing that can ever set you free is Jesus Christ. As a youth pastor, I used to tell my kids all the time, 
when you got up this morning, you probably took a shower. Some of them I knew they did not. I just want to make that clear. But I said, you probably took a shower. And before you got in the shower, I doubt that anybody took the time to wipe all the dirt off first. Instead, you got in the shower, and while you were in there, you took that rag and you wiped the dirt away. But it was being in the shower that made you clean. I know a lot of folks who have tried to find God, and they'll make statements of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try God, but I need to take care of some things in my life first. I need to clean up some things. I need to get rid of some habits, and then I'll try God. I need to clean all the dirt off first, and then I'll step into the shower. It's the most illogical idea in the world. The only one who can truly set you free is Jesus Christ. I want you to know today that no matter what your sin may be, no matter what your addiction may be, there is hope and there is freedom available through Jesus Christ. You don't have to be the strongest guy or girl in the world, but you do have to want it. This is why Paul this is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5:17 where he says therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation old things have passed away behold all things become new the old life that once defined you the old life that had defeated you and had kept you in bondage, according to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, that old life is dead. You are a new creation. In Jesus, not only can you move from death into life, but you can move from captivity into freedom. You win. What an incredible opportunity we have in Jesus Christ. So we've talked about the need for realization. We've talked about the need for submission. Now, I want to talk to you about the need for decision. It's not enough to simply say that I want to be different. You must decide I am willing to be set free from whatever it is that ails you. I don't know the things that you struggle with today. Some of you I do know just from conversations that we've had, but my guess is that every individual in this room, at some point or another, we have struggled with some type of sin. Not just saying we did way back when, but I would suggest probably even today. Maybe it's little things that everybody else would look at and say it's not that big of a deal. The wage of sin is death, regardless if it's a big one or a little one. So it's the same either way. But somehow we've justified it. Maybe you're just gossiping. Maybe you're just stretching the truth just a little bit. Or maybe you're lusting. Maybe you're in an adulterous relationship. Maybe you have wandered completely away from God and you've been doing things that you know are absolutely wrong. We must all reach a point where we are willing to say, God, I desire to be set free. I remember hearing a preacher talk about laying ourselves on the altar and deciding that we would sacrifice all of ourselves to the Lord. He said it was a beautiful image, but then he lamented that there was a problem with such a living sacrifice. See, the problem with the living sacrifice is that it has a tendency to get up and walk away from the altar. The animal 
doesn't always stay put and wants to get up and leave. You remember the, the story of Abraham offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice to the Lord? It's actually found in Genesis chapter 22, and I just want to clarify, God truly never intended for Isaac to be sacrificed that day. The reality is God was really trying to, in many ways, test Abraham. Do you really trust me? Do you really trust the promises that I've given? Are you willing to give up everything for the sake of following me? As they headed up to the place of sacrifice, Isaac asked his father, where is the animal for sacrifice? Abraham knew what the Lord had called him to do. And in Genesis 22, verse 8, Abraham responds with the statement, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. He didn't actually answer the question. He simply said, God will provide the sacrifice. In the verses that would follow, we see Abraham ready and willing to do as the Lord had commanded. In verse 9, again, in Genesis 22, in verse 9, it says that when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, it's that last statement that I want to focus on for a moment. I wonder why Abraham had to bind his son. It seemed as if Isaac had been a willing participant all the way up until this point of the sacrifice. He carried the wood for the sacrifice and was even willing to go get the sacrifice that was required. Where is the sacrifice? And even as his father began to bind his son, Isaac had to realize what was happening because the sacrifice was always bound and placed on the altar. So why bind Isaac in the first place? Perhaps there was concern that when Isaac saw his father with a knife, that Isaac might not remain as committed to the submission. He might run away. So often we are willing to serve as living sacrifices for the Lord. But the moment that it calls us to do something uncomfortable or it calls us to something that's outside of our plan, our willingness suddenly fades. I assure you today that the journey of pursuing Christ will likely be very difficult. There will likely be times that you're going to question whether you really want to be that living sacrifice. But I also assure you that if you will submit yourselves unto the Lord, then he will transform you and he will give you incredible victory. But you must decide if you are willing to allow God to transform your life so that you can be set free. Far too many people have good intentions. They're looking forward to the day that they'll be willing to be set free, but probably not today. God, I'm willing to be set free from my addiction, from my controlling nature, from my bitterness, from my lying tongue, from my adulterous heart, from my complacency. What is it that you need 
to be set free from today? Will you make that decision right now? If you would, I'm ask you to bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, well, we recognize that far too many of us have justified our sins. We've allowed things that we knew were not right and did not belong in our lives. We've allowed them to take place, and we've been okay with it. Father, first of all today, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask you to forgive us of our sins. Just as you tell us in your word in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us of those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, right now we confess our sins. We ask you to forgive us and to cleanse us. But Father, I pray now that you would now set us free, that those sins that have bound us will no longer be what hold us in bondage, no longer defeat us, no longer define us. Instead, I pray that it would be the grace of God that would define us, the power of God to be set free. Lord, I pray that we would be transformed into your likeness. I don't know the needs that individuals have here this morning, but each one today, we all need to be set free. So I pray, Lord, that you would whatever that looks like. Maybe it's adulterous hearts. Maybe it's complacency. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's complaining. But whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you'd transform us on the inside so that the outside will look really different too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, before I close, I know some of y'all are thinking already, well, good, we're out of here on time. Sorry, I got something else I want to share with you. Someone asked me recently what the vision of this church is. I would imagine that most of you have seen our mission statement that says we are to be making disciples who will make a difference. But what is the vision? As I share this with you, you'll see our vision statement is somewhat similar uh, to what I've already said, but it's also specifically connected to the verse that I have referenced this morning, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. The vision of Trinity Wesleyan Church is that we long to be a people that are set apart for God's glory, filled with Christ's mercy, and obediently following the Spirit's lead. We've been set apart for God's purposes, holy living, acting justly. We are filled with Christ's mercy, especially to the broken around us. We are loving mercy as those who have received mercy. And we are obediently following the Spirit's lead, walking humbly with our God. Until we become all of these things, we still have much work to do. And then, when we become all of these things, we'll likely discover that we have even more work left to be done. Help us to be a church full of people set apart for God's glory, filled with Christ's mercy, and obediently following the Spirit's lead. I hope that's your prayer. That is definitely mine today. Such a blessing to have you with us this morning. Go in peace.